Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, is Canada following in the footsteps of our American neighbors when it comes to gun violence? The leaders of Canada's major grocery change insist that food price inflation is not caused by profit mongering and that their margins on food-related profits have remained low. Do you believe that? And two high-level national security reports suggest that leaders were warned that Chinese government officials were funneling money into Canadian political candidates. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University, will join us to talk about that. It's all on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something that was a very hot issue uh, a little while ago, and the government actually has backed off a little bit, and that's gun control. Uh, and and there have been a number of incidents, of course, in the last little while uh, about uh, mass shootings. And as a matter of fact, when you look at some of the statistics here, it's pretty troubling about the number of mass shootings that we've had here in Canada, especially in the last four to five years, uh, which is why the federal government brought up the whole concept of gun control and banning of certain weapons. Uh, there was a lot of pushback this time around, and uh, they've just basically put the pause button on this right now. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be talking about it. Uh, because the concern, I think, is still there. I'll give you a companion piece about this, about how we feel about public safety. There's an interesting piece uh, that was uh, printed just a little while ago in time.com uh, that talks about this, and I want our next guest to to fill us in on some of the concerns and some of the details. Uh, she is Dr. Namja Ahmad, who is a Canadian trauma surgeon and a professor of surgery at the University of Toronto. She's also founder of Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns. Uh, doctor, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Good morning. This is not a new issue. It's a very controversial issue, as we know. Uh, we've always tended to, to look at ourselves and say, well, we're not as bad as some other countries. I mean, look at what goes on in the States all the time, uh, the mass shootings at Uvalde, Texas, and, and so many other incidents that have happened. But statistically here, uh, we're not out of the woods, and we, we can't really stand up here and, and take the high ground because it's starting to happen here with more frequency, isn't it? That's a really good observation. I completely agree. Yeah, we tend to feel in Canada that we are somewhat immune because we compare ourselves to the U.S., but everyone should recognize and, and realize, and many Canadians do, that the U.S. is a far outlier compared to other uh, economically developed uh, countries of the world. And although our firearm mortality rates are about five or six times less than the U.S., it's also true that our firearm mortality rates are five to eight times higher than other uh, our other peer nations like the UK, Australia, um, New Zealand, uh, uh, Norway, Japan. And I think that should give us pause and we should consider what else can be done to make Canada safer from gun violence. And I understand, and I and I don't want to take a holier-than-thou attitude because, as I say, we've got our own concerns, and there are major concerns in this country. But I, I can recall years ago t taking a trip to Boston, Massachusetts, uh, and uh, the bus tour, and, and the as we were going down through one section of the town, the, the guide was saying, oh, that's uh, that's Mass General. That's where we take all the gunshot wounds. And I said, all the guns? She says, oh, yeah, we get dozens of them almost on a daily basis here. Uh, and because guns are more frequently used down there for a variety of reasons and probably easier uh, to get. Uh, which is why this government, I guess, has been trying now for the last little while uh, to enact this legislation about bans on certain types of weapons. Were you surprised that there was such a pushback on it this past time that to the point where they had to actually uh, put the pause button on and say, maybe we can go back and, and, and rework this? Yeah, it's true the government has withdrawn two important amendments to Bill C-21. Those amendments, uh, G-4 and G-46, 
define the characteristics of what an assault style weapon would be, um, meaning its caliber, its semi-automatic mechanism, capacity, uh, its capacity to accept large capacity magazines, and muzzle energy, which make these weapons highly lethal. And we know the proliferation of these guns, types of weapons in society, uh, makes it much more likely that mass shootings can happen and makes it much makes those mass shootings uh, much more lethal, meaning more people are killed, more people are injured, because they're designed to uh, rapidly fire high caliber bullets without uh, without having without the shooter having to reload. Many many countries in the world uh, have uh, banned these weapons from civilian use and have seen a reduction in their mass shooting and firearm mortality rates. So was I surprised? I think that. Um, I would say that some of the communication around this issue and the specific amendments could have been better on behalf of the government. And I know that uh, this bill and these amendments are currently being debated in the House of Commons. And I encourage all Canadians to learn more about about the specific amendments to Bill C-21. Other countries have moved ahead and they're now further ahead. Our firearm mortality rates are are really climbing where uh, other peer nations firearm mortality rates are falling. Of course, the U.S., as you correctly point out, is a notable exception. Yeah, it's a it's a different approach to it down there. But what I'm always puzzled by, though, Doctor, is, is this is not the first time this has happened. I know that the Paul Martin government back in, uh, I guess, 2004, I tried to ban handguns uh, and got a laugh, a lot of pushback. But overwhelmingly, every time there were public opinions bo- polls done on this, uh, Canadians in overwhelming measures, usually it's at 70 or 70 plus percent most of the time, saying, yeah, we, we want the ban, especially on assault weapons. Uh, but that message I, is, is not either not getting through to our parliamentarians or they're they're being pushed in another direction. What do you think is happening here? Yeah, really great question. And, you know, you're correct. Uh, in poll after poll, 80 percent or upwards of 80 percent of Canadians support an assault weapons ban uh, because it's 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 everybody recognizes it's a matter of public safety and the health of our communities. Uh, we don't want to be like the U.S. with mass shootings every day. Uh, or uh, several uh, every week. Um, we have been, as you correctly pointed out, on an uptick, and we've had about one mass shooting a year for the last 10 years. Uh, and in nine of those 10 cases, um, the weapon that was used was legally acquired. So we really need to start paying attention to this. To specifically answer your question, I think that we have, sadly, in Canada, we have a rather well organized, seemingly well funded, very vociferous, very active gun lobby, uh, and most Canadians may not realize this, but it's true, and they lobby, lobby very, very hard when successive governments try to enact evidence-informed um, firearm legislation that is supported by the majority of Canadians, not dissimilar to what's happening in the U.S. Um, in the U.S. as well, the majority of Americans are in favor of evidence-informed firearm legislation like background checks and uh, and other measures, but their voices are drowned out by, as I said, um, special interest groups that are that are interested in the profit margin. And we should take a uh, lesson from that and be sure that we don't follow their path because we're going to end up where they are uh, or in a similar place if we're not careful. Uh, and, and, you know, the, there was the terrible incident, of course, in New Brunswick, which is, I think, is well documented now, where a number of people were shot and killed over a period of time. The mosque shooting uh, from a few years ago in Quebec. I mean, I mean uh, the, the, they, they still out in my mind as I'm reading this this piece here. 
the concern, I guess, is, is and, and it's something that we've talked about in so many other facets of, of politics and society, I guess, these days, is the spread of misinformation. Uh, mm-hmm. Not factual information, but, you know, in other words, it could, it's, it's the sort of thing that can appear on social media, spread like wildfire, and all of a sudden it, people's minds are going to be made up by really false sets of, of data on situations like this. And I get the sense that the, the that gun lobby is doing that. I mean, with, when this last piece of legislation was still being debated in Parliament, as you recall, Doctor, uh, the, the mantra from the people that were opposed to this was they're going to take your guns away. Uh, which is what the the lobby in the states is always saying, and and there has been no piece of legislation that has said we're taking your guns away. What they want to do is make it more restrictive uh, as to who can get a gun, uh, and there should be background checks on that for for sure, and the style of weapons. And it, it, but that seemed to be what carried the day. Is you know hunters, farmers, others were saying, well, they're here to take our guns away, and and the the government just seemed to cower when that 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 wave of opposition started to come. Yeah, you know, it's a really, really good point. And you're right, there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, but the, the, the correct uh, information is that this bill, Bill C-21, and the amendments that are current, that were withdrawn and now currently are before the House of Commons for ongoing debate, G4 and G47, and I encourage all of your uh, listeners to look them up. It's all publicly sourceable information. Target... Um, highly lethal weapons with semi-automatic me- mechanisms, high muzzle energy, and uh, and high-capacity magazines. Uh, and and uh, But you're correct that the information was spread that, the, that they're coming for your hunting rifles, and they're coming after hunters, and it, it um, can interfere with indigenous uh, communities, traditional hunting practices. Um, yeah, but I can tell you, and people can look it up for themselves, they don't have to, to um, believe me, the vast, vast, vast majority of guns that would be affected by these amendments are uh, not used by traditional hunters, uh, not used for you know hunting waterfowl, uh, generally not used by indigenous Inuit communities. Uh, this is misinformation. And I agree that the government could have done a better job to get that message out there. Uh, but we can't allow this opportunity to pass us by. We have a moment, and I feel, and I do this work, I see patients in our trauma bay, in our emergency department, in our operating rooms, sadly, every week who are affected by gun violence. I feel that we are inflection point, that if we don't act now and do the right things and take a public health approach and put the 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 the, the welfare of the general population ahead of the rights or the um, the um, the loud voices, I shouldn't say rights because there's no rights in Canada own or possess uh, guns, but the loud voices from the other side, we're going to lose this moment and the generations that come ahead of us are, are going to pay the price. Uh, so uh, it is, as you said, misinformation and the gun lobby did seize on this to sort of spread the misinformation that that the government was coming after traditional hunting rifles that are coming after hunters and and it's it simply just is not true well and I, I think you raise a point that's very germane to this discussion uh the governments can and should do a better job 
explaining legislation, and not just on this issue, but on so many other issues, that they, they just assume that that you know everybody's going to be on side and everybody's going to get this. And I, I don't know if they have a wholesome discussion about this before they open the the doors of the cabinet room and say, okay, now uh, let's let's present this. Uh, something as contentious as this, where they know there's going to be some pushback, some of it based on misinformation, uh, they've got to get their ducks in a row. And I don't think they did with this legislation. So you know, bad on them. Yeah. I I, I I agree. Actually, the, the the legislation itself is pretty well written and it's largely evidence informed and it seems it is evidence informed and it seems the government has done due diligence in uh, communicating, collaborating with other governments to see how they have fashioned their firearm legislation. Um, uh, those those countries where they have seen a reduction uh, um, in firearm mortalities and a reduction in mass shootings, Australia, the UK, Japan. Uh, Norway, for example, uh, the Canadian government seems to have done a due diligence in communicating uh, with external partners. Uh, however, I will agree with you that the communication and the messaging on this with Canadians in general has not been great, and they should have done a better job. And that's in part uh, the part of the reason why we find ourselves in this difficult situation. But again, I would say to Canadians that... Um, it's still the right thing to do. Uh, it's still an important issue upon which uh, Canadians should think and ponder the future of the country. Uh, it's really about Canadian values. Uh, and uh, despite the missteps um, by our by our federal government, there still is an opportunity to make sure that these amendments are properly debated, properly studied, um, uh, studied against the evidence, considered uh, whether or not uh, it would make the country safer from gun violence, um, make our communities better, our homes safer. And if, if Canadians decide that, in fact, that the, the proposals uh, are in the best interest of our communities, then Canadians should say that. They should speak with their voice because currently the gun lobby is controlling the narrative. And I think their interests are not aligned with the public good. Are you confident that's going to happen? I mean, you see, you see the end result with the worst case scenario. You see the people that have been shot, uh, the victims in situations like this, and I'm sure you'd love to see fewer of them. Uh, but are you confident that there's, there, there's our politicians can show the courage to move forward on something like this? Uh, that's why I'm here today to have this discussion with you and your listeners. Uh, I have conf- I do have confidence that Canadians uh, will do the right thing and the good thing uh, on behalf of their neighbors and their and their you know uh, fellow citizens. Uh, I know it's being under vigorous debate in the House of Commons and uh, Canadian Doctors Protection from Guns will be providing testimony as they have before uh, so that our parliamentarians can consider the weight of the evidence and look at it from a public health perspective. Um, uh, I, you know, I think the jury is still a little bit out, but that's why I'm here. I'm here to uh, make sure that people, as many people understand what's at stake so that we can make the right decisions. Doctor, I do appreciate your time today and uh, for your uh, your passion for this subject. And uh, hopefully we can talk again successfully down the road uh, about the implementation of this. But uh, we got a ways to go, I guess. But anyway, I appreciate your time. Thank you. I look forward to hearing you from you again. Thanks again. Take care. Dr. Nadja Ahmed from uh, University of Toronto Hospital. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We at Empire are not profiting from inflation. It doesn't matter how many times you say it write it or tweet it. It is simply not true. The truth is we are at the end of a very long food supply chain that has economic inputs at every step and stage. 
That's uh, Michael Medline, who is the CEO of Empire Company Limited. That operates, uh, well, places like Sobeys and, and some others. He was one of the uh, major uh, market uh, grocery market owners that uh, appeared before the Commons Committee yesterday and uh, basically said, don't blame us. That, that's what it's coming down to right now. Hey, glad you're with us today. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL in London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, we're going to get into this in greater detail in just a couple of seconds. I also want to remind you that the plot thickens about foreign interference in elections. There's some new developments in that that we're going to cover just after 10.30. But let's uh, swing back to Ottawa yesterday and the concern. And, uh, well, you know, we just heard from from Mr. Medline, from uh, the guy that he's a big cheese patty, of course, with uh, Sobeys. Uh, they got some of my money yesterday, more of it than they got the week before, of course, uh, because of the high prices that are going on. Consumers are angry. That's what it comes down to. And uh, there's a lot of finger pointing going on here. And, and well, we're not just angry. I think we're we're confused about you know who's doing what, who's not doing what, and the fact of the matter is, is we're paying an awful lot more for it, and we want somebody to do something about it. Try to make some sense of it all. We're so pleased to welcome back to the program Ian Lee, associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure, Bill. We've you've saw I, I, as we all have I guess you've seen some of the uh, the excerpts from the uh, the question and answers yesterday. Uh, the uh, the CEOs were I think defiant in some ways, They're just saying that like yeah we've told you back off it's not us. Uh, are they protesting too much or is there something to their argument? Uh, Bill, I, I've been studying this industry for thirty uh, odd years. I've been teaching strategy for thirty five years. Uh, before that, I was nine years in banking. I lent money to businesses and studied things like the gross profit margin, the net profit margin, the cost of goods sold, and so forth. And um, I've been arguing um, since this first emerged that the, these allegations of greedflation are just absolutely bogus. And by the way, so your viewers don't start writing me emails about how I'm in the pocket, I don't consult to this industry. I have no investments in this industry. It's a lousy industry to invest in, and I've said that for 30-odd years. This industry for my entire lifetime and longer is notoriously a low margin business. It, it There are high margin businesses like pharmaceuticals, oil and gas, pipelines, uh, telecom, where they you can make a lot of money. Uh, this industry is just a lousy industry. It always has been. And uh, I won't go into the details. Of it. Principally, it's because it's very difficult to differentiate in this industry, to use the language of strategy and Michael Porter. Differentiate means make your product unique. I mean, a head of lettuce is a head of lettuce is a head of lettuce. It doesn't matter if you sell it or buy it at Loblaws or Sobeys or Metro. It's still a head of lettuce. And so the point being that um, you cannot you cannot differentiate. And because you cannot differentiate in this industry, the margins are very low. This is exactly why this industry has been diversifying another strategy into, into uh, uh, drugstores. And into clothing like Joe Fresh and mm -hmm. into hair personal care products like uh, shampoos and that sort of thing because the margins are higher there. And, and this has been known for, for my entire lifetime. And so this idea of greedflation is just absolutely nonsense, absolute, specious, bogus nonsense. I can't put it more bluntly. Now, some will say, oh, I don't trust that data. And by the way, I've studied the data for each company as well as the industry averages. And this is an industry that makes one to three cents on every dollar. Nobody who has a basic understanding of arithmetic or a basic accounting 
will argue that one to three cents on every dollar is high profit margin. Only people that don't know this industry or don't know accounting. And the second point, for those who say, I don't trust all that accounting stuff and all that knowledge and don't tell me about all those numbers, there's another way to test this. And you go look at the inflation rate, food inflation, for each of the high-income countries, the OECD. Well, it just so happens the OECD published a report only three days ago showing food inflation in Germany, France, England, Canada, etc. You see, if we were, if our, uh, the grocery retailers were charging a lot more or significantly more for the food in Canada, marking it up more, it would show up with higher food inflation in Canada. And in fact, if you look at the OECD data, which obviously our parliamentarians did not do, they would quickly discover that we are below the OECD average for food inflation. We are below Germany, significantly below Germany, significantly below France, significantly below UK, and we're about even Stephen with uh, the United States. Now, these are percentages, so we're not playing with absolute dollars. We're using percentages. And so there is just simply no evidence. And I'm saying, someone, I'm saying this as somebody who's been studying this stuff literally for 45 years, nine years in banking, 35 years teaching strategy. And the students have to go look up the data with the audited financial reports, audited annual reports, and look up things like the gross margin, like the inventory turnover, like the uh, cost of goods sold. And there is simply no evidence whatsoever. This whole thing has been made up by politicians who do not understand arithmetic or management accounting or strategy. Well, and let's you know drill down and look at some of the people that are making the accusations right now. And and by the way, there's certainly an audience for these accusations because I mean we're all pissed off about the price of food. You know, I, sure, my, my, sure. my chicken costs a lot more than it did three weeks ago, and I get that. I understand that anger. Yeah, yeah. But I, I talked to one of your colleagues about this last week when they made a big hoopla about we're going to bring these guys in front of this committee, and he says it's just going to be political showbiz. That's all there is to it. And, and, and we saw that yesterday, didn't we, Ian? I mean, you know, Jack yes. Meet Singh shows up and he's got like probably 50 pounds of, I guess, testimonials from angry citizens. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to do about it? You can read them all if you want, but I mean, that doesn't change yeah. the reality, I guess, of what's going on. And, and I don't think anybody Bill. in their right mind ever thought that Galen Weston was going to stand up there and say, yeah, you got us. You're right. We've been screwing you guys around. That wasn't right. going to happen. And Bill, I know there's some of your listeners are probably getting very angry at what I'm saying. I've already had some emails saying, you're in the pocket of blah, blahs. Well, no, I'm not. I don't have, I don't even invest in the stock market because I don't, I've always invested all my life in real estate. I'm a big believer in real estate. I don't invest. And I'll tell you this for your listeners. If I did invest in the stock market out of a hundred industries in our country or the United States, the last industry I would invest in, bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the list, would be grocery retailing. It is a horrible industry. Like I tell my students, and I've been saying this for 30 years, there's two industries stay away from. Avoid like the bubonic plague. One is restaurants, and because the, they fail like crazy. They have an incredible failure rate. And the other is grocery retailing because the profit margins are so pathetic, so miserable. You want to make money, go invest in pharmaceuticals, go invest in pipelines, go invest in oil and gas, go invest in telecom, go invest in banking. But this industry has forever and ever and ever been a, a lousy industry. And all of a sudden, we're led to believe, we're told to believe that it's jumped from being a terrible, terrible, terrible industry to being this incredibly, this profit gushing entity. This is absolute crap. 
Sorry, people. It's garbage. Garbage. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's amazing. And I'm not denying price increases. There's serious price increases in inflation. And I understand people are hurting, but that doesn't mean you can make things up. You know, you can't start denying gravity just because you're angry at something in society or in this instance, you're angry at the food prices. I am too. I've argued over and over. We drove interest rates far too low, far, far too low, below they were the rate they were in the Great Depression and in the Second World War. We pumped way too much liquidity into the system through fiscal policy, and we pumped an enormous amount of stimulus in, and we allowed the genie called inflation to get out of the damn bottle. So I'm not, <laughs> what I'm saying is, yes, there's inflation, and yes, we screwed up big time, but it wasn't the grocery retailers. Well, and there's there's a political reality here that I've tried to you know impart when we've talked about this in the show in the in the past uh, that uh, there's always this desire by politicians to 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 create this illusion that they're going to try to do something about this when in their heart of hearts at least I guess the smart ones anyway know that they can't do anything about it but it is political theater. I, yes. a colleague who used to be in that business in in the grocery business some years ago. Uh, said, "Look at what's going on here." I mean, because he was responding to, in like fashion to you, and he says, "Let me tell you about the business." He says, "Why do you think all of a sudden you've seen grocery stores going with hot food counters uh, and their bakeries exactly. in store, and as you say, yeah. the Joe Fresh yeah. and and other yeah. because he says because when they were losing money." He says, so they've decided, okay, we're going to pivot. We're going to do this now. We got to get yeah. people in the door. Uh, you know, it wasn't enough just to say, okay, here's your milk, your bread, your eggs, uh, you know, go home, bring it. We don't have time for that stuff anymore. So they've tried to pivot. And he says, you know, they're trying it's, every way they can to try to make a few bucks. Uh, so prices have one, gone up. I mean, the price of my blue jeans have gone up. The price of my gasoline for the car have yes. gone up. I, I'd be naive to think the price of food wasn't going to go up. Exactly. And Bill, one more quick point, because people don't realize this because they don't study it, which is fine. I mean, you know, the people that aren't paid to sit around and study uh, one industry supply chain or versus another. All the grocery stores. So I'm not picking on any one of them. They are 100% retailers. In other words, Loblaws, Metro, Sobeys, and all the other grocery stores out there, they do not make one potato. They do not make one hamburger. They do not make one loaf of bread. They all, Loblaws sold off their bread division, remember. In other words, they, every last product on every last shelf in every last grocery store is bought from hundreds or thousands of suppliers who are upstream. Upstream meaning the farmers grow the food or the cows or the beef or the, the, the hogs, etc. And then the food processors, the Maple Leaf Foods and companies like that, uh, Tyson Chickens, um, butcher, let's be blunt, they butcher the animals and turn them into nice little plastic packages, or they chop the vegetables up and put them in nice little bags for us. And then that gets shipped to the retailer. So they're buying from these hundreds and hundreds of suppliers in all the different departments you see in a grocery store, you know, dairy and, uh, and um, uh, meat and seafood and so forth. And so they're at the end of this long, complex supply chain that is very energy intensive. And, and I wished our, our prime minister would speak the truth on this because he won't. He won't talk about it. And, and yes, I understand why we're doing a carbon tax. I do. But the carbon tax is putting up the price of carbon, meaning oil, gas, diesel. We all know that. Well, agriculture, food production is very uh, energy intensive. It's only 2% of GDP, but it uses 10% of the totality of all the energy used in Canada. 
Now, you know, anybody listening to me knows, oh my goodness me, energy has been going through the roof. Exactly. And so the there's a very good reason why the prices are going up throughout the food supply chain. And that's because energy has been going through the roof. And of course, Putin and the war in Ukraine, because they produce a third of all the wheat and barley and, and, and grain products in the world. And so there's been there's been two or three or four key factors. I would put energy at the top of the list as the driving force for food price increases. And I would put that right number two. I'd put Russia's invasion of of uh, of Ukraine. So there are these factors. And by the way, the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, which has an awesome set of economists, they have hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of economists. They crunched the numbers and put out the reports on this. And they've isolated it very, very precisely, right down to a specific, you know, pesticides have gone up this much and diesel's gone up that much. And anybody who chooses to spend all that time. Most people have busy lives and don't. Uh, if you go through the data from StatsCan or the USDA, it's very, very clear where the price increases are coming from. And they're very real. I'm not trying to tell anybody who's listening that the price increases aren't real. They are real and they're painful and they're larger than the reg the overall inflation rate. And we've got to get that back down. I, I completely uh, completely agree. And and I the Bank of Canada is forecasting they'll be down to 3% this year. We will see. They're saying it'll be down to 2. Well, if the overall rate is down to 3 or, and next year down to 2, that's going to pull everything down including food inflation. The USDA is forecasting 4% this year food inflation in the US and they're right next door to us. They're a very large agricultural producer. So, and I respect the USDA. So they're saying, they're forecasting, doesn't mean it's true. We don't know yet, but they're saying food inflation by the end of the year is going to be down to around 4%. If so, I think a lot of that pain and hurt that people are feeling is going to subside. Ian, it's always great to have you on here to uh, to shine some light on, on, on the facts in situations like this. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you very much. Ian Lee, uh, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at uh, Carleton University in Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Beyond uh, the partisan to and fro that we necessarily see in this house, uh, it is important to create uh, an independent, unimpeachable special rapporteur who is going to be able to oversee uh, the entire landscape around national security. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau yesterday during question period, and the plot thickens. Uh, this is the Bill Kelly Show, CFPL London, CHML in Hamilton, uh, especially with the report yesterday from the uh, Toronto Star that suggests uh, that there were briefings uh, that were made available to the Prime Minister, notwithstanding the fact that he said he hasn't seen anything like that. And, uh, of course, there are denials going back and forth, but there seems to be a growing body of evidence here from, uh, well, some are suggesting leaked documents. Uh, are they believable? And where is this going to end? I, I don't know at this point. Let's ask our next guest, Elliot Tepper, uh, who, of course, is an emeritus professor of political science at Carleton University, uh, joins us to talk about this. Uh, Elliot, I, first, I'm glad you could join us. Thanks for the time today. Uh, Thank you. All Good the years morning, you Bill. and I have, have talked about this on the program, and, and you've, uh, you have every right right now to say, I told you so. Be careful of the Chinese, <laughs> you've always said. Uh, they, they are clandestine. They 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 sneak in, you know, in, in very stereotypical ways, and, and all of a sudden they're there and they're a presence. And uh, there's a growing body of evidence that that's exactly what they've been doing here. We've, uh, we've got many different aspects to this particular story. One is that it ap does appear that there has been election interference by a foreign state, uh, and, and not, not a rogue agency, but by the state apparatus itself, in this case, the United Workers Front. 
the um, the multiple questions that come out of this is, uh, first of all, we have to pay attention indeed to the integrity of our elections. And I have concerns that the, where this conversation is drifting is pushing us away from that and toward the whole question of process and politics. I'm, I'm concerned, uh, perhaps this isn't a major concern, but I, I, I'm increasingly concerned, Bill, that we're talking not about results now, we're talking about uh, can we nail the prime minister? Did he just mislead parliament? And what did he know? And when did he know it? All those are valid. But my bottom line here is whether it's done by a, a uh, special committee of parliament or a public inquiry or a graduate seminar at Carleton, we want results. We want specific recommendations now about what to do about foreign interference, specifically in regard to elections but more broadly uh, than that. Well, and that's the part I made in my commentary on CHML earlier this morning. Is uh, it, I, I get that there's always going to be a political aspect to this. Uh, but if anything, one of the takeaways we can get from what we've been able to ascertain already is that is that we're an easy target for for you know foreign powers that want to try to do this. There are flaws in our in our system uh, when it comes to campaign financing, when it comes to a selection of candidates and things of this nature, and and uh, we haven't done a whole lot about it in the past, and it, it makes us vulnerable right now. And and this is this is as you say the foot in the door that that uh, clandestine powers are, uh, can use against us right now. So uh, we we. There's, you know, there's, there's a little bit of blame that we have to accept here. There may be even a lot of it uh, about what's going on, but that has not been the, fo the focus, and that, I'm troubled by that as well. Uh, yes. It just seems as the, the, the opposition parties are using this right now to, okay, let's get Trudeau. Uh, and, you know, that's the political side of this, but if we're not going to get the message about this, this is only going to happen again and again, isn't it? We do have the eternal conundrum of what to do about an open and free and democratic society balancing on one side that freedom and the other time, on the other hand, security. This is a, an ongoing eternal debate, uh, freedom versus security. Do we want to change ourselves so much that in fact we no longer are the democratic society that has made us so vulnerable to this? So I, I would, uh, there's two aspects to this in particular that I think we need to focus on. The first is, what do we have now to deal with foreign espionage and foreign interference? In, in particular, in regard to election security, but it's broader than that. We already have a whole range of, of uh, ways of dealing with foreign interference and uh, interference in, um, in our security. But also, second of all, we now need, a, obviously, to step up our game. What changes do we need to make that are still compatible with our democratic society? And those are two questions which I'm afraid are are, are getting lost now in, in the political discussions. One of the other elements to this, too, and I just wanted you to get a qu quick comment about the story that was in the Toronto Star about this, right. uh, that, uh, that talked about uh, how some of this money was being channeled. Uh, and intelligence sources say that a provincial official has been named in, well, not named in the, they named in the report, but not publicly named anyway, uh, with right. alleged clandestine transfer from a Toronto consulate. To, it's a member of the Ontario legislature. Now, they don't identify who it was or what political party. And uh, we know that uh, it seems as if both liberal and, and conservative candidates uh, might have been the beneficiaries of this right now. But the fact that now we've got a provincial uh, MPP involved in this, just how deep is this? And, and how deeply ingrained in our system is, is this kind of clandestine activity? We need to do a scan 
uh, about open and free and democratic society up and down the scale. This could easily extend down to much lower levels, particularly those who are involved with the Hong Kong issue. You and I talked about Hong Kong a lot yeah. over the years. Uh, the people who have been concerned, the Hong Kong expatriates basically, who know what it means to lose your freedom, have been saying that uh, it isn't just at the federal level and it isn't just at elections, but it's also all the way down to you know school board elections. Uh, I think I think a distinction would be helpful here. On the one hand, we have soft power. It's quite legitimate for states to try to pursue methods in other states which create a favorable attitude toward you know the state that's the, that's the, using the soft power. We do this all the time. That's normal operation during the noon and after negotiations. We really had to step up our game on soft power. But you cross the line when you go for activities which are covert, corrupt, and coercive. And it does appear that since we're speaking about this particular case of the elections, and you mentioned a particular individual, uh, it does appear that the line has been crossed. And the second distinction brought to us out of the specialists who deal with this all the time is that there's a very great distinction between evidence and intelligence reporting. So that China has been saying all along, you are relying on slander. This is just a unconfirmed private unnamed sources. Intelligence is not the same thing as evidence. But of course, if we ever do get evidence, then um, there are means of dealing with the diplomats or others who are involved. Uh, are we going to get to that stage? I, that's my concern now is that we are focusing on the symbolism of where we have an open uh, inquiry or not. And then if we have this open inquiry, public inquiry, then everything's all right. And if we don't have it, well, nothing's good. And I, I, I believe that diverts us from answering the question you just asked. Uh, will we ever know? We have already, as we are discovering, uh, a plethora of ways of doing investigations and coming to conclusions. Uh, the, the issue now is can we raise that to the level of evidence uh, that can be acted upon? Uh, and I guess we're all waiting now for the adults to show up here and start handling this instead of uh, some of the stuff we've seen going on in the commons. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. More to come on this, as they say in our business, right? <laughs> Indeed. This this story is going to continue. China's, this is one part of a much broader pattern of activity by China and others opposed to our democratic way of life. Exactly. Elliot Tepper, as always, Elliot, take care. We'll talk again soon. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.